Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 26, 2012, and my guest is Tammy Frisbee, a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Tammy, welcome to EconTalk. Good to be here with you. Our topic for today is the United States tax system and prospects for reform, or maybe just change. We'll see. Uh, I want to start with going back to the 1980s, something I know you've looked at. There were quite a few changes in the U.S. tax code uh, beginning in 1981. What were the most important, and what was the timing of those of those changes? The first important change is in 1981 with the tax recovery, excuse me, the Economic Recovery Tax Act. And that's one of the, the landmark pieces of tax legislation that comes out of the Reagan administration. That's when most people talk about Ronald Reagan cutting taxes. That's the first bill they're talking about. That's the piece of legislation with which we bring the top marginal tax rate from nearly 70% down to 50%. It also makes an important structural change to the tax code that we continue to benefit from, and that's the indexing of the the marginal rates to inflation. Also, the the personal exemption and the standard deduction were indexed to inflation with the the 1981 Act. And we all can probably uh, remember, although I'll have to admit that I was not a conscious adult <laughs> during most of those years, uh, that was uh, the, the bracket creep that happened because the tax code wasn't indexed to inflation prior to 1981, was a revenue machine for the, the federal government. Uh, it allowed... Without legislation. Correct. Without having to... Leg- ta- automatic tax increases, more people's incomes were pushed into higher brackets, generating more income. Exactly. Exactly. More revenue, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. And there were other important changes with the, with the 1981 Act, but those uh, are two of the most prominent. I was going to say, do you remember, but since you were uh, barely sentient, evidently, in the, in the 1980s, <laughs> uh, but I'll ask, do you know uh, roughly how many um, people that, se- that top-rate bracket reduction affected? So 70% is a high number. It had been 70% for a long time. Uh, it was dropped to 50. Did that affect a tiny proportion of the American people or a significant portion? you remember? Do you know? Well, there is uh, some debate about calculating exactly who pl- pays less and by how much. But in total, there is a consensus that uh, the 1981 Economic Recovery Tax Act saved the American taxpayers $143 billion over the next four years. So that it was called a $143 billion tax cut. You yes. could call it that. A phrase I really don't like because uh, it doesn't distinguish between changes in rates, which was the centerpiece of the Reagan tax cuts, and changes in collections, which have been the last couple of tax cuts, the so-called tax cuts, the Bush mm-hmm. tax change and the Obama tax change. These were temporary one-time checks in the mail, not alterations in the marginal rate. That's right. The changes that we saw in the tax code in the 1980s are of a fundamentally different kind than the kind of tax policy making that elected officials have been doing over the last decade. So that was 81. What came after that? There was then, in 1982, the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act. So after the 1981 tax cuts, there was, within the Reagan White House, a group of individuals who was concerned about the size of the the budget deficit and then, of course, the debt that would accumulate due to that. And so there began to be a conversation within the Reagan White House about how to actually walk back some of what was done with the, the 1981 tax reforms. Not changes in the marginal rates, to go to your point about the difference between rate changes and changes in collection, but actually to focus on collection. So a couple of things that were done in 1982 were that... Uh, Interest and dividend with dividend withholding was put into place as a way to increase revenue collections, and also the corporate estimated tax payments were on a schedule that was set to be accelerated, and they accelerated that further. Those were two of the the important changes that were made. Of course, in any of these tax reform packages, there are there are a lot of things that we could go into. So I'm just trying to highlight a few of them 
on, on any of these that we talk about. And so uh, to give you a sense of the scale of those changes compared to the 1981 Act, as I said, so $143 billion with the 1981 Act in, uh, in tax relief. And then in 1982, with the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act, you had $47 billion over the next four years that was then uh, increased. increased. But not changes in marginal rates. Correct. So that's a different story. And, and of course, these estimates are Somewhat wild guesses. It's a little strong, but they're they're inherently imprecise because there's dynamic behavioral changes in response to the rates, and you you can't. You're, there's a lot of hyper hypotheticals that have to be presumed when you're trying to measure those changes in revenue collection. Right. Correct. Uh, so then we go. Uh, I was going to say though that instead of changing the tax collection withholding, they maybe should have spent less if they're worried about the deficit, but they didn't seem to be as good at that. Uh, but that was 82. So after that, we had, what was the next big one? The next big one is uh, 1986 by, by most scholars of legislative tax history. Uh, there were also changes in 83, and I don't want to discount the significance of those reforms to, to particular constituencies in American politics, but really 1981, uh, with the Economic Recovery Tax Act, 1982 with the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act. In 1983, you do have the Interest and Dividends Tax Compliance Act, which actually repealed those interest and dividends <laughs> withholdings. There are a lot of changes in the early 1980s with, with tax policy. It's uh, for, for a, a wonk, it's a great time to study in tax policy. But that really brings us up to 1986, the last time we had comprehensive tax reform. And so now as we enter this period where we're once again in America talking about tax reform, it's to 1986 that we that we hearken. So why was 86 important? 1986 is the last time that we've had uh, tax code changes, reform if you will, of the, the scope that, uh, that that bill represents. So since then... We had tax changes in in ninety one, for example, uh, when George Bush broke his uh, campaign pledge, and Clinton had a major tax change in what ninety three was it? I can't remember. Uh, ninety three, I think you're correct with that, and then of course the the Bush uh, t tax changes as well in two thousand and one, right. Bush two, Bush the second. But the uh, all of those, although you could debate it, because I think some of the Bush changes maybe were a little more important. A lot of those were tweaks. They were changes in marginal rates, and you're suggesting that the 86 one was of a different, of a different qualitative nature. Yes, uh, because you get changes in marginal tax rates that are accompanied with uh, significant changes in tax expenditures, with these loopholes and exclusions. And individual reform is done with part and parcel with corporate reform, and the the extent to which the tax code changed during that period cannot be matched by any of these subsequent reforms. So what, what was important about 1986? What happened? So in 1986, you have a tax code that has uh, 14 brackets. Before the reform. Before the reform. And that is taken down to, well, technically to two brackets. Uh, but actually, there was a phantom top marginal tax rate of 33% uh, that really actually wished that people on the right would be more honest about, <laughs> that there were three tax brackets okay, well, there. We, you and I can yeah. call it three. Yes, okay. So there were three. Um, phantom or not, there were three. Of sure. Uh, and then you had uh, changes to... Uh, so, so, hang yeah. on. So a simplification from 14 rates to three, but also a, a, a further drop from the... Pre-81 level in the top rate, correct? Yes. Yeah, so you had these uh, this simplification to the individual tax rates, going from tax rates that under prior law ranged from 11 to a top marginal tax rate of 50%. That was still the, the top marginal tax rate in effect from the 1981 Reagan reform. So down from 70 to 50, but then further in this code to? Uh, top marginal tax rate. Up 33 or Big change. 15 to 28, depending on what your position on whether there's two or three rates is. <laughs> yeah. But why, why is there a debate about that? Are there two rates or three? Just between you and me. Don't, you know, no one's listening really. <laughs> you, you can be honest. Go ahead. Well, there, what's there, that about? There was a surcharge on certain high incomes that brought that effective rate to 33%. For some high income earners. Right. So it's right. not really in the book, but you do pay it. Or it's whatever you want to go. It's, on, it's a special supplement on the back, in the back. 
That Something is like that. my interpretation of yeah. it. I, I know that there are well-respected tax policy experts who disagree with whether that is actually a top marginal tax rate. But in my view, uh, as a as a political scientist, uh, that's my view. So okay. So but still, it was thirty-three. Yes. Down from fifty. Right. Which is a a thirty-three percent change. It's a seventeen percentage point change on a base of fifty, which is quite large. Yes. Yeah. And to pay for those very large reductions in marginal tax rates, elected officials on both sides of the aisle had to get together and agree to some very difficult deals related to, to the loopholes and exclusions in the tax code. So, uh, and you should keep in mind that they did that because they set the ultimate goal of this tax reform being revenue neutral. On paper, whatever, you know, through some CBO or other standards. Correct. And of course, not using dynamic scoring, yeah. uh, but... Dynamic scoring being... Uh, dynamic scoring being a way of uh, modeling the effect of tax reforms in a way that you allow for economic growth as a product of, of reduced tax rates, which... Incentive effects. Right. The CBO currently does not do under under law. They they don't do that, not because they don't want to, but because that's the, yeah. the so rules that, that Congress it, set. They are... They presume in any of their estimates that nobody changes their working habits or declares more income or whatever in response to, or investment behavior in response to changes in rates. Yes, overall. The CBO does take into account changes, some changes in behavior, okay. but not as much as those who, who favor dynamic, fully dynamic okay. uh, scoring from the CBO would, would like to see. Um, so you had to come up with ways to pay for those reductions. In, if you wanted to be revenue neutral. If you yeah. wanted to be revenue neutral, exactly. And they did that in a number of ways. So they did chip away a little bit at the mortgage interest deduction. It used to be fully deductible. No matter how many houses you owned, if you had a mortgage, you could deduct that from your income. Uh, when all was said and done after really two years of battling over this tax reform, from November of uh, 1984 when Treasury won, the first plan from the administration is submitted, to when Reagan signs it into law in November of 1986, um, th this you know nearly two-year period, they managed to say what we're going to do is mortgage interest will be deductible for your first and second home. But, but that covered most. But so probably covered in those days, most yeah. Americans. Uh, consumer yeah, interest. Most, almost all. Yeah. Um, uh, as some of your listeners might remember, used to be fully deductible. Credit card charges of the late payments, it's not late payments, but interest incurred because of that was deductible. Right. Not anymore. Yeah. Right. And after 1986. Because you don't want people to incur too much debt. Yeah. <laughs> but we found other ways to encourage it. But yeah. Okay. So that, that, but that was a big change. That was a very right. big change. Uh, charitable contributions, another exemption that we talk a lot about when we talk about tax reform. Uh, that used to be deductible for both um, itemizers and non-itemizers. Non-itemizers. It's after 86, and, and now right, it's only deductible for... If you itemize. Right. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, when you're thinking about tax reform... You think about the ways to pick up little little pieces of of revenue to to put toward the larger goal, and then some bigger chunks, right? And this charitable deduction is an example of something where you picked up, you know, several billion dollars, not you know, not a big chunk of change. While we're on the subject, what was the measured so-called official size of this tax change? Was it neutral, right? Or were the I see people separated out the revenue effects of the of the marginal tax cut rates to other things. So you suggested that the marginal tax cut rates needed to, quote, be paid for. So how big were they? Do you remember? Right. Um, so you were quite old in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> so I said remember. Right. Yeah. Um, so they were, um, you know, by, um, by the consensus estimates of, of the effect, you're talking about several hundred billion dollars. In, so big. In, yeah, and you get $200 billion of that actually from changes in the corporate tax code because corporations get there to jump to the other side of the tax code here. They take lower rates uh, and they do also take these changes and exclusions, these closing of loopholes, but it is not purely revenue neutral on their side. It is revenue neutral across the corporate and the individual tax code. Okay. Um, so, so that paid for most of these changes on the individual side, and then these individual side uh, changes picked up another you know, $100 billion, several hundred billion dollars. Um, so just to give you a, a couple other examples, I don't want to you know, um, cause people to go to sleep talking about tax policy here, uh, but the two-earner deduction. 
we used to not have a marriage penalty. After 86, you have a marriage penalty. Which means? Uh, that if you have two earners in a household, that their incomes are added on top of one another uh, if there's a marriage penalty, and that they are treated as essentially, to simplify it, as if one person owned that income. So the progressivity of the tax code hits the married couple in a way it wouldn't if they were both single. That's the effect of it, right? Uh, right, because they together might hit the top marginal tax rate, for example, and they wouldn't if Otherwise. they were, right? Okay, so that's the essence. That's what's the so-called marriage penalty. Right, and now in the current tax fight that we're having, we do actually have a, a modified reduction in the marriage penalty that could potentially go away, um, depending on what Congress decides to do. Uh, so it's not fully correct to say that right now you know, we have the marriage penalty as it was in 1986. Um, and then one of the most important changes in 1986 was that the preferential treatment, the differential between the capital gains rate, the long-term capital gains rate, and income was eliminated. Uh, so you used to have, uh, prior, in prior law, in 1986, you had a 20% long-term capital gains rate, and then uh, when the bill was signed into law, you had a, a 33% uh, capital gains rate, which would bring it into line with the, the, the top, top phantom rate. The top rate that individuals pay on their earned income. Correct. And the idea there was to give people no incentive to artificially distort how they collected their income, I assume, in theory. or That was the justification for it, at least. I. Well, that is one justification for it. I, as a political scientist, Correct, I would yeah. say the justification for it is, uh, and, and knowing something about the legislative history on this, the justification for it is that they needed to pay for the yeah. the reduction in the marginal rates, and that was Reagan's real priority. Um, the The story of the 1986 tax reforms is, forgive me for saying so, a really great read. And if, if I can give a recommendation to your listeners, it would be to read Showdown at Gucci Gulch um, by Birnbaum and Murray, who were cub reporters uh, for the Washington Post during the 1986 tax reforms. And they wrote a really riveting account. It's a great read. It's hard read. to believe. Is it's, that giggle because it's hard to believe it's riveting? <laughs> right? Tax reform? It, there, I assume, the, they're, they're talking about horse trading and other... Backroom deals that had to be made or avoided to make this actually happen. Is yes. that what the essence of the book is? That's what the essence of the book is, is this, the story of how the deals actually got done. And they had fantastic access to all the insiders here. Um, the, the reviews of their work by the major political players are largely favorable. So that's a, that's a good sign. Um, it comes in paperback. I recommend it as a beach read. <laughs> we'll put a link up to it at, uh, on the website of this podcast. Well, let's talk about the politics. In, you know, the 1980s, when we look back on them, uh, of course, there's a lot of bias the way people look at it, depending on their political persuasion. But it was clearly a time of pretty healthy, uh, if not very healthy, economic growth overall. Uh, lots of turmoil in the tax code and lots of spending. So the deficits that you know, people blame the deficits sometimes on the tax cuts, but if you look at spending, uh, and it of course depends what you call the Reagan era. Whether it start, if you start in 1980, you get a different answer. If you start in 81, because there's a recession in there about where GDP is. But uh, basically, spending rises dramatically, and tax revenue doesn't keep up for whatever, whether however you want to describe the the however you want to label that. But that's that's what happens. But at the same time. The structure of the tax code, it's raising a lot more money, by the way, by the end of the 1980s than before because income's rising and possibly there's incentive effects that are positive from these tax changes. But over, there's an overwhelming income increase that's the base, tax base is much larger. Defenders of the code changes will say that's because we changed all the incentives, but I'd argue we can't really know any of that very well. So let's put that to the side. What were the political forces that caused this much change to be politically realized. What's your read on that, uh, of that, of that change? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a top-notch question. Uh, if I can start by saying that one of the lessons that I try to keep in mind when I study public policy making is from John Kingdon, the Dean of Public Policy Scholars, and he says that 
trying to go to the point of origin on policy change is a fruitless exercise because it's an exercise of infinite regress. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. But that's the same. And it's a complex system with emergent sure. behavior and politics is emergent. It's not some person decided because of some factor to do X. It's hundreds, in fact, thousands of people interacting in complex ways. But what are some of the effects? Right. Oh, there? So to go to the the point about a person leading the charge, and many yeah. people who talk about the 86 tax reforms will talk about the crucial role that Ronald Reagan played, that this was a personal issue for him, that he used to talk about when he was subject to the 90% tax rate when he was making movies in, in Washington, right? So that that's a, um, a starting point that many people have, so I'll, I'll just throw that out there. But of course, had he wanted that and no one else did, <laughs> nothing have yeah. would have happened. Correct. So to think about the the pressures that were out there among the American public and then within Congress. So first, among the American public, there was a growing sense that the tax system was unfair. The, the stories in the nightly news, in the daily newspaper, were with growing frequency about people who were getting away with with tax evasion, uh, avoidance, avoidance, whatever you want to call it, um, that their tax shelters. There was a, an elaborate scheme of tax shelters during this time. Many of them related to cattle. Uh, and being from Montana, I find that particularly interesting. Where you could dump a lot of money into an investment initially, experiencing a huge capital loss, and then only over time experience the revenue from that and so you could manage it in that way so to avoid tax right because marginal tax rates were so high people had figured out how to get, engage in tax avoidance but this was coming to light that people weren't paying taxes that there were these lists that we were, were being presented in congressional testimony of uh, American very wealthy Americans Americans with high incomes who had paid no income tax in the last year the last X years corporations that were paying no income tax and so the the sense among the American public this was becoming an increasingly salient issue something the American public was aware of at this time and then within Congress you and in Washington DC you had divided government so you had Reagan in the White House you had the Senate controlled by the Republicans with Bob Packwood at the head of the finance the chair of the Finance Committee and then you had House Democrats with a majority. And so uh, Rostenkowski is chair of Ways and Means, Dan Rostenkowski from Chicago, and he's the major player in the House side. And those players had their own interests in getting on the tax reform bandwagon. Reagan gives a speech, says that he's going to push for tax reform. Rostenkowski is designated to be the Democratic response, and everyone's sort of waiting for him to just attack at Reagan for having suggested this to say, imagine much of what we are hearing now in the current uh, very polarized debate over taxes. And uh, instead, he says, this is exactly the kind of leadership that the president needs to be exercising, and I encourage you to write Rosti and tell me what you think about this. And the response is overwhelmingly positive. And so you get both sides realize that they need to be involved in this to make sure that their interests and constituents are protected. So... Uh, but the if you had to list the winners and losers in broad mm -hmm. brush style, uh, obviously some of the people who were benefiting from those loopholes lost because they just got taken away. Right. right. Who else lost? Who else won? Uh, the, the, quote, average taxpayer doesn't have access to some of those investment vehicles, I presume, one, because in one dimension they got lower tax rates on their income. Of course, they had... They implicitly probably paid higher taxes through the products they bought if the corporate income tax affected them or in their stock returns if they held mutual funds or who knows. But who were some of the obvious winners and losers? Do we know? Well, um, we do know. Uh, on the corporate side, there was a division within corporations on this, which is one of the other keys to understanding why 86 was a time that was, was ripe for reform, that you had oil and gas corporations on one side who were set to to really take a hit from this because there were going to be changes and there were, were eventually changes in the way that that equipment is depreciated. So they took a hit. But then there were other corporations that were paying very high marginal corporate rates to pay for those loopholes. They, sure. Once those loopholes got closed, they, they benefited. Right. Um, so um, thinking about individuals, yes, certainly... Uh, 
you know, it's it's difficult to say, and this is one of those moments where, as a um, as a political scientist, I I try not to wade too much into the um, the economics of the the effects, the economic effects of of uh, tax reform uh, to the extent that I want to understand how public opinion changes sure. as a re- result of these things. Um, I I do that, but certainly the average um, person. Average taxpayer median income did overall experience a, a benefit on this, right? Sure. With the mortgage interest deduction, the change there, you know, first and second homes, most middle class taxpayers are just fine, fine. on that. That's yeah. that's not a change uh, to them. Um, so a lot know, of people who give charitable deductions were itemizing already, perhaps, and so that effect was small. They don't, it's not yeah. that big a amount of money, and right. Right. And then, uh, you know, on state and local taxes, there was a change where um, income and property tax remained deductible, but sales tax was not. So it's difficult to, to generalize across these. And that's why I, I'm hesitant to, yeah. you know, as somebody who is not a tax economist, to wade too heavily into that. And maybe the, the lesson um, for, for your listeners is that with any tax reform of this magnitude, whether it's in 1986 or what we might be getting um, here, uh, you know, now that we're more than 30 years overdue for for some sort of um, tax code uh, reform, it, it's it's difficult to say with sweeping strokes who wins and and who loses because of the um, the the nuance that tax policy is broke. Right? Okay, so well, let's cut. Let's let's come to the present. Um, yeah. As an economist who's not an expert on tax policy, you know my my views are are very general, uh, and I think most economists who are not experts, and even probably many who are, uh, have similar views that transparency is a good thing, simplicity is a good thing, uh, low marginal rates are better than high marginal rates if you can hold revenue neutral. Um, I'm surprised that you think there's some possibility of serious tax reform in the next few years simply because um, none of those things from an economist's perspective seem to be salient to the average voter. I mean, everybody complains about doing their taxes. That's always been true, and that's a wonderful make-work program for accountants and lawyers. Uh, they're going to always like complexity and, uh, and opacity and, and <laughs> pain because uh, they profit from it. But uh, what's going on today that is um, that you think is going to push the political process toward doing something? Yeah. Which I, might not be a good thing, but it's going to do something. To make a comment first about the the nature of public opinion on tax, and you're dead on point that most Americans are not spending their time thinking about tax reform. To my mind, tax politics is one of those issues and and sets of policies where it doesn't matter that the American public is jumping up and down at any one point in time. It matters that politicians and elected officials sense that there is something latent out there, and if they don't do something, that the public will <laughs> will penalize them for mm-hmm. it, and that's sure. really what happened in '86. So, if you, I've been looking at the the public opinion about. Do you think the tax code needs to be overhauled? Are there major problems with the tax code? And you, you occasionally, in these big data sets of public opinion, will find some individual poll that would say, oh, look, the American public was really fired up about this. But overall, it, it's not something that really was registering with the majority of Americans in 1986. And the polling overall, if you look at tax reform as a whole rather than individual issues, that's the same thing we're seeing now. But in 86, there was a, a strong sense among Democrats and Republicans, that if they did not do something to fix the system, that the American public would pay attention and, and would hold them accountable for that. So that, that exists potentially today as well. So, but to, to your, your question about... Yeah, why? Why does why? that exist today? Uh, well, some of the same markers. It's a little bit like trying to identify the dog that didn't bark, right? Mm-hmm. But some sure. of the same markers are there. So you have... Uh, Number of stories in the in the news about corporations that aren't paying taxes or are right. paying very low tax rates. We have this debate about the one percent and high earners and and their their tax rates. So some of those um, 
points of public discourse have the same flavor to me as For we sure. saw in 86. We've had them before and not gotten major tax reform, so they they are maybe nece- necessary but not sufficient, <laughs> sure. right? Um, but but that's where uh, we are with public opinion. In terms of catalysts for tax reform now, uh, we have hanging before us the fiscal cliff, uh, tax-mageddon. People have come up with various names for it. But um, the fact of the matter is that on January 1st, we have... 2013. 2013, yep. Uh, we have a set of tax policies that are set to expire. And the, that's the Bush tax cuts. That's the Bush tax cuts, the, and that is more than marginal tax rates. That has to do with child tax credits and the earned income tax and uh, has to do with this expiration of the reduction in the marriage penalty. Um, state tax. State tax capital gains uh, taxes, uh, the fact that payments on the dividend payments would then be, if these expire, taxed as regular income. At, at regular uh, earned income tax, marginal tax rates. And then that is all packaged with the expiration of the, the payroll tax cut, uh, the sequester um, spending that, that is going on. So all these fiscal issues together represent what? this fiscal cliff. But why is that? A, isn't that. I, I, now, I'm not, we're not going to debate the, the virtues of the. Bush tax cuts of 2001, other than I would mention that a little-known fact, which is that uh, they were a proportional cut in rates across the board, not a tax cut for the rich. The rich got the same proportional rates, but because the rich cuts, but because the rich higher income, they got a bigger dollar benefit, obviously, from that proportional rate cut. but you know, my crude reading of it is that the time, the years before that, if we go up to two thousand and one, there was an increase in uh, the tax burden on the rich, and this brought it back to what had been fairly recently before by letting them have the same proportional tax rate cuts as everybody else. Um, that's my take on the two thousand and one tax cut. I don't know if it's, uh, I think it's controversial, but I, I, I can, I think I can defend it. Uh, but why is I'm confused why this is a fiscal cliff. We're, we're spending a trillion dollars more than we take in. Isn't the natural thing, if you're worried about deficits, left or right, uh, it's ironic, the right's worried about, uh, they like low tax rates, the left, and, and balanced budgets, the left like, likes high taxes on, on certain groups. Let, this seems like a perfect political storm let the let the Bush tax cuts expire. The right's happy because we close the the deficit gap. The debt goes down. The right's the left's happy because they've been saying for years that those Bush tax cuts were unfair. That the rich got all the money from them. Um, isn't that going to isn't that what's going to happen politically? It's just, we're just going nothing's going to happen. It's just going to and wouldn't that close the fiscal gap? On paper, it would close the fiscal gap if it wasn't happening in this economy. And that is the argument that economists on the left and the right are making, that the timing of this... Not a good time to raise tax rates. Right. And while there's not unanimity on this point, there is uh, bipartisanship and an ideological agreement uh, among among uh, prominent economists and, and policy experts that this is a not a good time to for this to happen, and it could potentially plunge us back into a recession. We're not already in one. By then, which some people are worried about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so this moment uh, in which there are so many individual pieces of the tax code, just to take the tax code portion of the fiscal cliff that need to be dealt with. Uh, John Taylor here at Stanford and at the Hoover Institution has an, a nice graph on his Economic One blog in which he looks at the number of expiring tax provisions over the last the last decade. And for... The first set of those years, it's often no tax provisions expiring, 10, maybe 20, and then you just see those bars go up, and in this most recent year, it's 140 tax provisions. So these were pieces of the tax code that were, quote, temporary, right, that were allowed to be in place for a while, and then, although there were probably some people who fought to keep them, they couldn't do it, and so they expired. Yes, uh, well, 
or they were set to expire and then they were extended for another year. Oh, okay. And that's created this whole class of tax policy called tax extenders, which are these one-year tax provisions usually aimed at businesses that are habitually extended. (laughs) And this, from a political standpoint, is very convenient for members of Congress because what better way is there to make sure that Corporations and businesses are pay attention to you, yeah, yeah, and and donate to you, yeah. and then to have every year things. In another yeah, it's great like example, a, it's like yeah. a uh, an annuity for a politician. It's just a hamburger <laughs> helper, the extender of the, of the you know, it's disgusting. Of course, yes. one of the chal- problems of this, and this is in the background, and maybe we'll come back and talk about it later. One of the problems that I find so uh, distressing about this is the perpetual uncertainty for economic decision making because you don't know whether the tax code is going to change or not change um, and how it might change and that uncertainty can't be a good thing. And that is exactly one of the reasons why this might be a moment for major tax reform is you have all these expiring provisions. It throws in everyone's face that this is no way to run a tax code and especially not in an economy that needs stable, predictable policy in order to engage in a meaningful recovery. And that is ground on which you can get bipartisanship. You can get both Democrats and Republicans to agree that temporary tax policy is no way to get permanent economic growth and to to restart the American jobs engine. So the other thing I want to mention, I think it's important to put on the table, is that uh, Milton Friedman used to always say that... uh, you shouldn't look at the tax rates. You should look at how much government spends, and that's the measure of how much how high people's taxes are. So when Bush in 2001 cut rates uh, and then increased spending dramatically for both uh, the war and uh, Medicare expansion, uh, those were tax those were years of tax increase in Milton's world, and I agree with that. So I view taxes as being very high right now, and so if we extend these. Uh, if these tax cuts were to expire, the Bush tax p- provisions were to expire, uh, on paper it's sort of a tax increase because it certainly would be a change in marginal rates, but we still have to pay for all that stuff we're indebted on. And it's kind of a, in a way it's um, uh, it's a lot of uh, noise and not much, a lot of heat and uh, not much light maybe or light and not heat. I don't know what you'd help me out here. <laughs> uh, well, and Milton Friedman uh also wasn't pleased with what happened in 1986. He wrote a, uh, a editorial in April of 1986 about the proposed legislation, and he said that uh, it essentially was still full of Swiss cheese, that in order to engage in real tax reform, you needed to have a set of marginal tax rates and that you would need to get rid of the mortgage interest deduction, the charitable deduction, the employer-sponsored health insurance deduction, uh, all these things. So I uh, think, yeah, there's a lot going on right now that Milton Friedman would not be very happy about. But going back to your point about the 86 Act, where there were certain constituencies, constituencies pushing for certain things, certainly there are lots of economists and uh, policy people and even some politicians who think that the deductibility of health care benefits by the employer is a very bad idea. And so by eliminating that, that does free up, in a revenue-neutral change, the opportunity to do some other things, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, but that is on my list of growing list of reasons why there are major obstacles to tax reform this time around. Okay. And it has to do with double counting of that particular uh, loophole. Explain. Well, I... Uh, you have the the tax policy folks listing off the loopholes that they're going to close, or the ex- exclusions, if you want to give it a slightly um, more attractive yes. name, yeah, <laughs> disparaging name, yeah. and and they list employer health insurance, and they're good from their perspective, good policy reasons for that, related not only to tax policy but to healthcare policy yeah, as well. Sure. Right? And so they say this is great. We should do this. We'll be able to use this to pay for the lower marginal rates to keep right. things revenue neutral. But the healthcare policy folks who are interested in making major changes to healthcare policy in this country see closing of that exclusion as a way to pay for the things that they are trying to do. So there is going to be, as I see it, a coming political battle between who actually gets to count that money. And the CBO, under their protocols for scoring, can sometimes double count things, right? But what the CBO does and what 
is actual you know <laughs> reality in terms of the the policy implementation are two two separate things and i think that's going to be a problem not just in terms of of the politics but also in terms of the fiscal health of this country yeah that's great that's really interesting uh what are some other uh things are on the table I, you know with the housing crisis uh, still with us, the bust still there, and uh, a lot of people um, uncomfortable with the recent years of U.S. housing policy. There's a lot of interest in getting rid of the mortgage interest deduction in abstract terms, but in practical terms, you got homeowners who've just been kicked. I just can't see that happening. Oh, I, yeah, I agree entirely. I think that is one of the, the biggest obstacles is trying to pair back even the mortgage interest deduction in a time when so many Americans are already having trouble paying for their houses. And then Americans who are out of the housing market, who are looking to be home buyers, many of them are agitating for a, a, a further uh, drop in, um, in the housing market, which could actually argue for them favoring yeah, <laughs> the yeah, elimination no, of the bid. So it's going to get complicated. There's no shortage of politicians yeah. who want to do stupid things to encourage home ownership. We know that. Uh, this will be one of those things, I suspect. Is right. If anything, we might get more of it, right. which, of course, pushes up the price of housing artificially as part of our problem. But um, So what? given that there's this up-for-grabs feeling about January 1, what might emerge politically? Again, we're not going to talk about whether this is good economics or good tax policy. What do you think is important in terms of politics? I do think that there's a potential for a, a grand bargain, and I wasn't as optimistic about this even six weeks ago. And the thing that was really concerning me was the absence of specific policies, bills proposed by members of Congress. Because when you look back at 1986, the, the run-up even to 1984 had a group of very prominent members of Congress, senators and members in the House, who were sponsoring bills, most prominently Bill Bradley, who was ultimately instrumental in getting the 86 reform passed. You have Jack Kemp and the other supply-siders. So you can go back and you can see these pieces of legislation. And so you had these guys who had a stake in getting something done. They wanted to see something done, and they wanted their stuff in. And I was going back and looking through Thomas.gov, uh, the, the database of, uh, of, among other things, uh, legislation, and could find... Proposed bill after bill, sponsored bill of loophole exclusion, right, making the problem worse of a of a tax code of Swiss cheese, but only one plan for tax code overhaul. And in the last six weeks, as people have started to th on Capitol Hill have started to think about the potential embedded in this fiscal cliff or tax mageddon, you have had members of Congress who've actually started to write pieces of legislation. Mm. So I see that as a as a good sign out there. And that you could get something that is uh, what's um, bandied around a lot, something based on Simpson-Bowles. But again... Simpson-Bowles being the bipartisan commission that wanted to try and solve another problem, which is that we spend more than we take in. And it, yes. So their plan is actually not revenue neutral. Yeah, it's, it's revenue increasing. Correct. Or enhancing, as they like to say it, probably. Yes. And the, there's their, their chairman's mark, which lays out several different versions of plans. But those plans involve uh, elimination of or you know, major modification to the mortgage interest deduction and the employer-sponsored health uh, exemption. So all these things that are going to be so difficult to do, and you can't just say, oh, well, we'll just do Simpson-Bowles, right? Right, because, it's going to happen. Yeah. Right. But it, something like it could. It, it could be a starting point. Now, just for fun, let's, let's talk about something. Um, let's dream for a minute. Um, our colleagues here at Hoover, uh, Robert Hall and Alvin Bushka, came out with a small book on the flat tax for a small form that would allow you to fill your taxes out fairly easily. And Alvin Rabushka was a guest on this program back in, I think, 2007. Um, there's always some attractiveness to economists of some of a flat uh, tax, meaning both potentially relatively few rates and almost no deductions so that you could fill out your taxes in about 10 minutes on a, a postcard. 
Um, I like to dream about it. It has happened in some countries that had to start from scratch in Eastern Europe, right? I don't know whether they've moved away from that as political forces emerged that it would push them away from it. But uh, what are the prospects for that kind of tax reform where not just we tweak it here and there, but moved something closer to what economists, for example, would like? The other example would be a consumption tax. Um, well, to take the, the flat income tax and the consumption tax separately, I, I'd say that I think it is unlikely that in the United States we go to a single marginal rate in the foreseeable future. Most of the countries where you've seen that, many of them were transitioning from communism, so they get the advantage uh, and the challenge of starting from scratch, and they're able to do that. But the conversation about the flat tax is important because it is inarguable that in 1986, when they were moving to two or three rates from a 14-rate system, that the Friedman and Holland Rabushka's work about a flat tax was instrumental in that. And you, when you go back and you read the interviews and you read uh, the reporting that was done during and after that time, the staffers at the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is the crucial bipartisan committee that, that works between the House and the Senate, uh, Finance and Ways and Means, they gave credit to that thinking. Um, officials at Treasury give credit to that thinking. So the um, right, don't let the the best be the enemy of the good yeah, <laughs> here. Right. You know, that it's important to continue to to talk about the argument for a flat tax, and and then if we can get somewhere close to that, that's good. Uh, on the the consumption tax side, politically, that is also a, a difficult issue because, and we saw this in the Republican primary, when you start talking about a consumption tax or a VAT, that is quickly portrayed... VAT being a value-added tax that would be levied on business, business yeah. transactions, which has the great virtue of being relatively efficient, but has the horror of being relatively unnoticed. So it, it does tend to lead to revenue creep in my perception of it. And that is the starting point of many of the political criticisms of it in that it would, in all likelihood in the United States' case, not be done as a replacement yeah. for, right? Just but, an add-on. Yeah, and so you have uh, the criticism that this will be a, a revenue machine uh, for the federal government and point out if it is, in fact, less noticeable to people, that that will only encourage the problem. And so it's not a way to actually fix the tax system, but a way to increase taxes. That's the, the political argument that's out there about it. So the one thing I think that you highlighted as, as being politically salient right now is this anger at the 1% or anger at the rich or anger at, at the financial sector. Um, that's an anger I'd like to see fixed by getting rid of bailouts and other special treatments that that they that Wall Street and other parts of the financial sector get. Um, but it would seem to me that to the extent that is politically salient, debates over inequality, uh, that's going to push, push us toward higher marginal tax rates in the next round, not lower. Uh, until recently, I think the top 1% of taxpayers – Paid forty percent of U.S. income taxes, um, which is seems like a high number to me. I don't think that's good for a democracy either for, to have the bottom ninety nine percent paying so little, or to have government so dependent on coddling the top one percent and have them being successful. Which to me is a really sick, um, grotesque aspect of the current tax code. Uh, I'd like to see us move toward a a more proportional, not proportional, not the word I want. So, there are just so few people paying any income tax right now, and so many people, uh, a small group, but but so many paying a very high amount. It seems like a very unhealthy thing for a democracy. And I don't see anything on the horizon that's going to move us away from that. Do you? Uh, I do not. Politically. Politically, I do not either. And from a policy standpoint, this is a difficult conversation for uh, conservative economists sometimes because conservative economists have been instrumental in arguing for the expansion of the earned income tax credit. And it's we'll talk about that. Talk about, what they're, talk about what that is and why it's important. So there are uh, tens of millions of Americans who get a uh, refundable tax credit. So it means that 
you can actually get more money back from the IRS than you paid in in income taxes. It's essentially a, a it's a, the United States' largest anti-poverty program, and which is wild. Arguably the most successful as well because it rewards work. The you have to get earned income yeah. in order to to get this this tax credit. Uh, and part of what's going on right now it, with the the tax policies that are expiring is that you would also have a ex- expiration of an extension and expansion of the earned income tax credit. Which took place in 2001 as part of the deal that allowed the rates to come down for other folks. Right, during the the George W. Bush administration. And their earned income tax credit goes back uh, 1960s, 1970s, and it's been expanded and changed over time. But uh, conservative economists and policymakers have to now figure out a way to, to address this issue that you point to about the health of a democracy in which you have citizens who are paying taxes, right, state level, local level, sales tax, uh, their payroll taxes if they're working, but they are not paying into the the general revenue stream and potentially are even getting money back, while at the same time recognizing that they were the ones who forwarded this policy, and it actually has roots in Milton Friedman's work. Negative income tax and the capitalism and freedom. Right. Uh, so there's some policy fine-tuning that needs to be done here and some, I think, some real thinking that needs to be done among uh, economists of, of all stripes about how you achieve the, the legitimate goals that were set out and then uh, you know, attempted to implement through the earned income tax credit while not experiencing these, uh, these negative side effects. Well, you hear all the time, and it's, it's, it's a fact, but I think it's a mis- I have a feeling it's a misleading fact, you hear all the time that the that more than fifty percent of taxpayers have no uh, ta- have pay no tax pay zero tax. Um, I there's at least two things about that I find um, difficult to believe that it's a reliable number. One is it, it's tax returns, not taxpayers. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how that changes it. Uh, but this so when it says fifty percent of tax returns have zero tax owed, I don't know. Uh, whether that means that I know it doesn't mean that fifty percent of in, of individuals, but it could it could be the same. But I don't think it's not the same, literally. But the second thing is, does that statement that you typically hear does that include the earned income tax credit? So if I'm a if I earn a, some amount of money that makes me eligible for the earned income tax credit, does that mean I pay, I have a tax due, and I then later get a check, or does that mean when I file I have a zero? So when I'm assessing. This claim, which is a worrisome claim to me, again, for a democracy, that a significant portion, for sure, may not be 50, but it is a significant portion, pays zero. Is that true? Is that How does that income tax credit interact with that claim, do you know? It, it interacts with the claim um, depending on how you right, measure it. Uh, and... This is a, an ongoing debate between people who are measuring it in different ways. And, and an additional way that they're trying to, to measure it differently is not just to look at any given year, but to look across individuals because there is some publicly available tax data in which you can look at one individual over time. And what I would think really matters is people who serially fall into that category. right? And that number goes down quite dramatically. Uh, and I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what it is, but uh, if you try to identify people who for the last three years or the last five years haven't paid any income tax, whether because they didn't pay any at all uh, or because they got the earned income tax right. credit, right? right? There are many fewer Americans who are just not paying ta- taxes for year after year after year. Many fewer? Yes. So because There are more people in, paying taxes, you're saying? Uh, there are fewer people who don't owe taxes for multiple years than there are Americans who, in any given year, right? That people f- move in and out of that category, whatever sure. the number is. And I understand. Are you saying when you say fewer, you mean the, the the number's lower if you if you lower. look at it over over a long yes. period of time, right? But it could be still rising over, right? It, it could be rising, but I guess we have to decide what what we're concerned about. Are we concerned about? Let's say you include people who uh, are receiving their refundable earned income tax credit, um, and 
you say, okay, they didn't pay taxes in that year, but then the next year they don't get the earned income tax credit, and so they did qualify. pay taxes, right? Do you think that they are one of these people, if we're concerned that somehow this impacts their view of government and, and you know, the role of government and the difference in the trade-off, appropriate trade-off between liberty and security, does one year on that cause you to, to worry about it? Does two, does three, right? Yeah. Well, it has an effect. It's, obviously, it's bigger if it's every year, but... I mean, I think the numbers, and I'm, I'm also working from memory here, but I think the bottom half of either the income distribution or of taxpayers based on adjusted gross income, and they're, of course, not quite the same, but I think the bottom half pays about 5% of all income taxes, which means that a dollar of government spending costs you a nickel. And when, if that's true, you're getting a 20 to 1, 19 to 1 subsidy. You like it than if you're paying a lot, uh, potentially. Of course, this ignores payroll taxes, which are quite significant, and uh, any worker pays that. They may not perceive it as being paying it because they may decide, falsely in my opinion, that it goes toward their Social Security retirement <laughs> uh, into a little box for them, but it, a little account. It doesn't. It goes out the door to pay for the the war or the agricultural price payments or anything else. It's just, it's fake. It's an illusion. And I have not seen good polling uh, on how Americans perceive their payroll taxes, whether they have a good sense of where that money is going or if they just see it as taxes and they think that um, well, as you point out, they actually are paying for all those things with that money or or whether they think that, oh no, I'm not contributing toward that, I'm contributing toward this. I mean, and you, generally, unless you're self-employed, you don't even file relative to those anything about those taxes. So unless you look at your pay stub, it doesn't even dent your consciousness, I don't think. I, I think that's probably correct. You have uh, a startling number of Americans who don't fully understand how, or even partially understand how Social Security works, how Medicaid works. I mean, well, that would include me. So it is a large, I suspect it's a pretty large number. I may be alone, but so we're getting long time. Tell me, uh, I, I want to give you two things to, to close on. One is um, uh, a reader of my blog, Pietro uh, Poggi Cardini, who I know also listens to Econ Talk, uh, reacting to something else I had talked about, made the point that you know maybe this is a good time to stop fiddling with the tax system. So it's true that there's some unhealthy things coming. Whatever we decide uh, it, that it starts applying in January of 2013, it would be good to kind of pledge to just leave it alone for a while. Even though it might not be the ideal system, uh, it would be great to let people make some plans for the future knowing that some things are in place. And, of course, the Bush tax cuts for 10 years uh, which were, quote, a long time, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and it's tomorrow. So five years, ten years maybe isn't the right amount, but you know, there's certainly a trade-off between the idea of improving the tax code versus if you're constantly, quote, improving it, it's, you're making it worse. Yes, from a process standpoint, that requires a constitutional amendment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or right. from the tax code yeah, as right. a, a constitutional amendment. Since uh, in the 20 years after the 1986 tax reform, the tax code was changed 15,000 times. Only 15,000? Only 15,000. Yeah, well, this comes back to this debate we get in sometimes here on this program when we talk about the effect of, of uh, uncertainty. And I, I'm a big believer in the effect of uncertainty, but of course, uncertainty is perennial. There's always... <laughs> But that's unbelievable. Yeah, fifteen thousand exactly, or fifteen thousand three hundred eighty-four. Probably <laughs> something a little like imprecise. Not exactly fifteen thousand. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, my other question is: uh, Do you want to uh, make a prediction? I'd like to hear what you think is the is a likely outcome uh, if we read. Mm-hmm visit these issues in a year, what do you think will have, have happened in the meanwhile? Because it's a big year. We're going to have uh, we're having an election. We've got this uh, these these expiring tax provisions in, in on December 31st, January 1st. What's What do you think is going to happen? Uh, I think that the first thing that will have happened is before the end of the 2012 calendar year, Congress will have dealt with the tax extenders. They will have dealt with these one-year tax exclusions for businesses, especially as we approach 
uh, November election, they will make sure that this is taken care of. Which is what? Process. They'll uh, extend these things? They, they won't let them expire? They, they will extend these for businesses. Temporarily, another temporary for another push. For yeah. the annuity, for another year. Because we've got a recession or fear of a near recession and can't risk. That will be the argument? The, well, that will be the public argument. Yeah. And the private argument is uh, the fact that they're raising money for an election. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that there, I think in a year, we could be in the middle of a full-on set of legislative and White House negotiations about major tax reform. Um, but I would put at 60-40 whether, I, I would put it at 60-40 that the tax policies that are set to expire at the end of 2012 actually are let to expire. I think we will roll, it is more likely than not that we'll roll into 2013 with the Bush tax cuts expired and Congress scrambling to figure out what to do about that. So you think they'll, they won't expire on January 1st, you're saying? Uh, yes, I, they'll, they'll expire on January 1st. And you think they'll let that happen? I, I think that they will, uh, through their inability to reach a deal before uh, the first of the year, that they, those will end up expiring. Okay, so there's some chance Dave Brady was a guest on this program, uh, I think a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but something a few weeks back. And uh, uh, Dave said, as of now, I know he's looking at Dave that you also look at, uh, as of now, slight chance, that, slightly higher chance that Obama win the presidency, the House is going to stay Republican. The Senate will go either 50-50 or maybe slightly Republican. But certainly in that scenario, we've got a divided government. The other possibility is Romney wins, the Senate goes 50-50 or 51-49, which means that it's Republican because he's got the deciding uh, vote with the VP, the vice president, and the House stays Republican, in which case you have united government. You want to say anything about those two different scenarios affecting your your prediction? Sure. Uh, if, as we move toward November, it continues to seem likely that uh, Obama will win, and that's a sense on Capitol Hill, right? uh, then I think that you actually are slightly more likely to get a deal before the end of the year, and that Republicans will, uh, well, especially if Obama is elected, they'll just maybe decide, they'll just decide, well, let's just do this, right? They have no more, better leverage. Uh, so some arguments about whether they'd have better leverage in January, but I, I don't think so. They should just, just cut a deal at, at that point. before. And cutting a deal expire. would mean... At the very least, uh, taking care of the expiring income tax provisions for a period of time that would then allow them to take care of tax overhaul. This is not going to be something that they're going to be able to do in the next six months or years. This is going to take some time to pull this deal together. And in the meantime, they would agree to, to extend the, some portion of the, the Bush-Obama tax cuts. But not probably not for the high end, because Obama will make that the... Well, we'll have to see what the congressional Democrats decide to do, because right now it's costless for the congressional Democrats to agree with the president's, well, not entirely costless, but they don't actually have to take a, a real vote on, on something. Uh, and there are many of them, in particular in the Senate, who think that the high earner line should be drawn at a million dollars, not 200000 $250,000. So that, that's a problem for the president there. Uh, if Republicans on the Hill start to feel confident that Romney is going to win, and then certainly if he, he does, I would expect that they would sit and wait for the inauguration, that right, they're not going to deal with the president, even if he makes overtures to them. Uh, they at least portion of the caucus in the conference will be tempted to wait until they're negotiating with a Republican White House. But, the, but if they do that, then January 1st, we're in back to the 2000 tax code, right? More or less. Right, unless uh, a lame duck Obama can work with congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans to essentially save the hide of congressional Democrats who are going to be then putting pressure on him to say, we got to agree to something here because I'm going to have irate constituents. So that's a potential point of leverage for the Republicans in trying to get the, the Bush-Obama tax cut portion of it uh, done in advance. But given the level of congressional dysfunction <laughs> recently, yeah. um, I think it's also possible that they decide that they're just going to um, uh, try to 
wait this out, engage in a what I would hope would be, uh, or what, what they, what I would advise them, um, would be a, a massive PR campaign to explain that they have things set and ready to go for um, for when Romney's in the in the White House. Um, but and what would that reform look like? What do you think would be the general if the Republicans win the White House, keep the House, and make enough advances, progress, or wins in the Senate to take charge of it, and it's a year from now, or 18 months from now, what tax code changes do you think are in the works that could happen? Uh, well, Romney's proposal is that you'd have a 20% across-the-board cut in marginal rates, so uh, lower than the current Bush Lower model. than the Bush rates. Right. So we could come in somewhere between the Bush rates and the Romney rates at hmm. that point. And would that be the single, do you think that's going to be the single biggest change, would be a, a further cut in marginal rates at a time we're running massive deficits? It's true. We've got a sick economy. He's going to argue we need these to jumpstart growth. We're not going to do anything else? Oh, in addition to those? Yeah, structurally. <laughs> uh, probably not packaged with those in, in the first month. Um, I would imagine there will be promises about what will uh -huh. come down the road. Yeah. But that... That conversation involves the conversations that we really need to be having about entitlement reform, um, about the overall level of government spending in this country, uh, and that is not a conversation that's going to come easily to Washington, D.C. I don't know how to describe this, but I'm getting a sense of deja vu about the future. <laughs> I've heard that song before, right? We'll cut taxes now, we'll cut rates now, and, and we'll make up the spending cuts later. And You think that's where we might be headed, huh? I think that's where we might be headed. I'm sorry to say it. My guest today has been Tammy Frisbee. Tammy, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.